This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, and uh, podcast number 39. Uh, and with me, Corey Morningstar in Toronto. Hi, Corey. Hi. Uh, Johan Edebo in Sweden. Uh, Hiroyuki Yamada in New York. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi, John. Um, so, uh, I'm going to sort of hand it over to you, Johan, to begin this, I think. We were talking before before the recording, um, uh, and I wrote a blog post this week, too, um, a little bit about what I think you're going to talk about. So, But let me just, why don't you start, essentially? Sure, sure. Uh, I'll be happy to. And this is uh, this is gonna be a bit long winded. So so if you give me five five to seven minutes, and I'll keep I'll I'll do this little little lecture thing, and I can shut up later. Uh, anyway, that I would say that uh, humans uh, are prone to to what you could call magical thinking. And feel free to interrupt me anytime. I, I, I yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> and by magical thinking, I mean that. Humans have there's an aspect of, of human cognition and of social life that's concerned with symbols and with their power to, to influence us in various ways. We've been talking previously a bit about how such things as uh, you know face masks and and vaccines have this symbolic significance, such as signs of uh, submission or fellowship. And, and I would like to just elaborate a little bit on this discussion in, in relation to recent events and so on. Uh, so this, this realm of symbols and of the subconscious, that's a, that's a human universal. All cultures all over the world throughout history have been very deeply involved with this aspect of the human experience, perhaps with the, the unique exception of modern industrial civilization, but, but that's not really the case I, either. I'll, I'll get back to that uh, in a minute. Uh, but anyway, because of this, we Westerners, we generally reduce this ceremonial and symbolic magic of other cultures to, to something like primitive and ignorant methods of producing mechanical effects in a basic sense. We, we kind of think of, it, of them as, um, as cargo cults, as dead-end ways to bring about immediate material effects that doesn't really work. You know, fireballs and and bolts of lightning and this kind of thing, but but this is this is basically just a caricature of of how traditional cultures view things, because to them, magic is is much more like a way to actively influence human consciousness. It's not exclusively this, of course, but much of of traditional magic. Is, is more akin to psychology, to hypnosis, to, to even indoctrination and these kinds of things. So, so it's often just about creating change by influencing our expectations and perceptions of things, which can be powerful enough. And just as, a, as an aside, this is not to any, in any way disparage the spiritual or the supernatural and so on. It, it's, not a, it's not a reductive take I'm trying to do. And I see no need for conflict with, between these perspectives. And I think religion is another issue entirely, but but that's that's for another day. Uh, so anyway, somewhat paradoxically, then I think that we moderns are particularly susceptible to the effects of symbols working upon the subconscious and the unconscious and so on, because we have absolutely no real familiarity with any of this stuff. We have almost no religion anymore. 
we have no familiarity with how myths, uh, ceremonies and rituals really work upon the psyche. And, and that's why I think we're more easily enthralled by those that actually operate in our own cultures. What we do talk about is such things as the placebo effect or psychogenic illness and, and such things. And, and on these issues, I think there's a very interesting overlap with the, such things as curses and hexes, so-called. I sent you this article during the week about a, a case in the 1930s where this man from the US almost died from being cursed by a witch doctor. And then he immediately recovered when his physician treated him with, the, with this placebo ritual. So apparently he had been told there was a lizard eating him from the inside. And then the doctor simply faked the extraction of this creature and the man then recovered immediately. Mm. And there are lots of similar examples in the literature from modern contexts and then notably instances when people have died following faulty diagnosis of terminal disease. So, so they died after having been told they only had a short while left to live, but then it was discovered that they weren't actually suffering from this illness. Uh, so, so psychogenic illness, the placebo and the nocebo effects, like the, the dark side of placebo, they are very real things with tangible somatic and psychological effects. If you're cursed, or if you break a, a significant cultural taboo, you can have severe anxieties, you can even become psychotic. So, so these things are not to be trifled with. Uh, so my take here in relation to, to the COVID situation is that in parallel with this actual virus, whose severity according to several studies probably isn't that much worse than the flu, we have also been exposed to what I would call the modern equivalent of a curse or a hex facilitated and heavily reinforced by the global mass media, where this uh, scientific and medical priesthood has proclaimed this great unseen blight that will devastate us if we don't adhere to these precise rituals and so on. And this, this, you know, this will have a profound effect on a great number of people, both psychologically and physically. For under normal circumstances, something like one in 200 will suffer from, from some kind of psychogenic illness. And these are very not normal circumstances. And this week I read two different uh, news articles relating to all this. So first I read this, this interview with two women who allegedly suffered from long COVID and they reported at least 50 different symptoms. And I mean, that's kind of not something you get as after effects from a viral infection, but it does fit the, the profile of, of a psychogenic illness. And there has been studies on this and the phenomenon is uh, it's quite easy to replicate. Um, and, and what's noteworthy is, is that these experiments, uh, these trials have had much, much more modest means in terms of creating the negative placebo effect. When you kind of compare it to like 14 months of, of incessant COVID horror pornography we've been exposed to. Uh, and the other article then, it told us how the COVID vaccines, according to many anecdotal reports, inexplicably cures this long COVID. And that, that is not, that's not something you would ever expect of a vaccine because we're dealing with the secondary effects of an acute infection that's no longer present. So the vaccines should do nothing in this situation. Uh, so to, to, to summarize then, uh, we, we have a situation that has been created where, where this great infectious curse, uh, lacking a better word, is upon us. 
and this this creates a psychological need for purification uh, because all cultures have some some equivalent to ritual purity to to deal with with these kinds of things whether it's explicit or not uh, so so this this narrative uh, it, it attacks our primitive psychology and creates this need for purification because you need some some kind of counter voodoo to to break the hex to use that kind of language and here the the vaccine comes in uh, it's developed by this heroic scientific priesthood. It, uh, it's the fruit of their occult knowledge. It cures us. This shows that uh, the, the authorities have defeated this curse and it dispels all this fear, all this nervous energy which, which has been focused on this, this enormous curse that the media has been conducting around us. So whatever else it also is, the vaccine functions as this form of ritual purification but, but at the same time as some kind of uh, initiation rite. I see that uh, people treat this vaccination as some kind of baptism. And this, uh, this idea is also reflected in the WHO ads telling us how the vaccine brings us together and creates a community and so on. And I mean, this is inevitably true because all initiation rites change you whether you like it or not. It, it's at a deep level of your identity, it, it makes you part of the team, a part of the society at the core of your identity. And the vaccine functions as a reintroduction, reintroduction to society. As you said, society is re-knit by this vaccine. And finally, then I think what this does in effect is to reinforce the authority of the established institutions at a very deep level of our psyche because it effectively bolsters the symbolic authority of a system that we all know for a number of years has been losing legitimacy in a global situation where control and surveillance is increasingly important. And all of this, I think, is channeled into bringing about this new normal, this surveillance state with the, the, the green past as a kind of talisman, if you will, imbued with the protective power of of our glorious scientific priesthood. I mean, it kind of paves the way for this development, especially with regard to the reintroduction to society. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's my introduction. Um, well, I, you know, we talked, um, you and I a bit during the week about some of this, uh, because one of the things that struck me from the beginning, uh, from the, the very first announcements, um, uh, that there was this virus and we had all those scary photographs from China and people in hazmat suits and, and dead bodies on the street and so forth, which were never repeated. They, they just fell into a black hole of, you know, of forgetfulness. Uh, but from the beginning, what struck me was there was no image, no particular symbol, no iconic image of this disease, you know, smallpox, there is a recognizable, um, you, you can tell if somebody has smallpox, um, bubonic plague, whatever. But, and for that matter, you can tell in a sense when people have influenza, um, this was always oddly amorphous and, 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 um, and vague and blurry. The, the nothing ever felt, um, nothing ever felt urgent on one level. The urgency always felt manufactured, but, but there was never a symbol that people could hold on to, although I suppose unconsciously they probably. Yeah, but that's why the mask those... is so important, I think. Yeah, 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 probably. 
indeed. Um, Corey Hiroyuki. Um, I, I think I'll just jump in. The, I think you really captured a lot of what Johan just spoke of in your recent piece, John. I believe it's called The Dream is the Mother that you published right. on, yeah. on your website. I think it was um, impeccable timing and very important piece of work. I really, really liked it. And it brought, um, it really made a lot of sense to me and brought a lot of clarity to me as things get more and more um, insane. And um, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I've had people when I'm outside um, in the gardens and that I've had neighbors come up and there's not a lot of people even around, but the ones that have, they come up and they've asked me or people within my family if I've had the vaccine, which is, I mean, I've never been asked, you know, this question in my life on whether or not I take any vaccine. And now pe people actually want, want to discuss it. I mean, they ask that as a segue into, so they can tell me how they've gotten the vaccine. Right. Right. And then they're really um, sort of taken aback when I express my views that I would never get that vaccine, um, you know, especially especially based on a virus, if I get it, and it, maybe I have got it, you know, um, I'll have mild, I'm healthy, so I would have mild to no symptoms, you know, hopefully. And, um, you know, we all know that the infection, what is it, the infection survival rate is close to 100%. So no, I would never get that. And then that sort of, um, then they're sort of, you know, then they don't want to talk anymore, because they're off to find someone else to, tell that they've received the vaccination right and that's mm -hmm. um yeah like some sort of yeah that that is uh, you know johan is right in what he was saying i think he really captures this new um what did you call it like a new baptism um you know into into what would this be into the into this new normal yeah yeah anyway yeah. Go, well, but you? I think I, you know, the the idea that 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 um, that the response to to the pandemic has been kind of cult like. I mean, a lot of people have said that that it's a mass um, um, kind of you know psychogenic hysterical response, a conversion disorder or something. I mean, other people have kind of noted this and and and. Um, and it's true that it, the, the rapidity with which all of these things happened is remarkable. We seem to have gone through, we, the society, Western society, has gone through these different stages with, with um, remarkable rapidity and, and, uh, and has absorbed things like mask wearing and social distancing and getting the vaccination and announcing that you've gotten the vaccination. Mm. Um, they've absorbed this into the, the, the common parlance day-to-day -day, um, rhetoric of, of life. I mean, people t talk about it with um, as if it's the most ordinary thing in the world. They're not, you know, they're seem blissfully unaware how how really peculiar and strange um th these kind of conversations really are um and again because you keep coming back one not you but we all keep coming back 
and it can't be said often enough, I don't think, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that we're talking about a virus that almost everybody survives. You know, 90, over 99% um, of humanity survives this. And I think it's very hard for anybody to dispute whatever else they think, to dispute the fear-mongering that's going on. You know, um, Turkey, um, so there were suddenly headlines about, <clears throat> you know, this spike in infections in Turkey and, mm. you know, there was going to be a lockdown and everything. And then if you actually check the figures, um, it's way, way, way beneath 1%. Um, you know, Turkey has 82 million people. So, um, and but this is true everywhere. Uh, the, the, the headlines, the media covers it as though the numbers are, are, um, you know, of historic magnitude and they're not, you know, they're relatively insignificant as, as, um, as pandemics go. Yeah. Johan. Yeah. Yeah. We get back to this, this glaring conflict between the rational and the, the non-rational, uh, behaviors. Uh, I just thought uh, about a, a, an acquaintance of mine. Uh, uh, she was a critic, uh, or at least she was critical of the situation and of the lockdowns and of the, the political responses and so on. Uh, she's a very intelligent woman. She's a professor of, of, of history and, and so on. And, and she, even she reported that, that this, um, this vaccination process she had just, she, she talked about it on, on uh, in social media and described her, her joy and, and liberation at receiving this. Uh, I mean, it, it really struck me as, as strange. Um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, I mean, there's so much I find strange. Um, you know, I, it, I was thinking this week, and, and this is kind of um, in light of this, um, about uh, the, I mean, in, in the U.S., things are opening up quite a bit. And, and they are opening up on the heels of, I think, increasingly um, people increasingly ignoring all the rules. And so then now they're quickly opening up most places. Uh, Norway is is kind of opening up, you know, gradually um, with with lots of caveats. Um, and I hear on social media and I hear talking to people um, these, wow, this kind of relief. Oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm so glad this is all over. And, and the implication, the very clear implication is that things are going to return to normal. And, and one of the problems moving forward is going to be in terms of like educating the populace, I guess, or getting our point across, whatever you want to say. One of the things that's going to be difficult is, is to explain why it is not exactly returning to normal at all. And in fact, that some places like Canada, for example, um, haven't, uh, you know, opened up at all. Um, yeah, Hiroyuki and then Corey. Um, I think we, uh, we should get back to the, the basic um, um, the, the perspective of the fact that the uh, capitalism itself is a religion of money and violence. It is uh, 
way to control people by uh, uh, forces, many forces, including symbols, uh, indoctrination, propaganda, uh, structural violence, uh, structural extortion. Uh, we are in this system. Uh, and I think people are already primed for anything, uh, anything like COVID. Um, it just fits in. Uh, it's yeah, that's so a good point. It's seamless. A point. It's already religion. And uh, once people are cued that this is something we're doing as religious thing, there's no way to defy that because it's within the framework. They, 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 I think people can't resist it. It's uh, No, I think that's a really... The, that's a great point in a way. And you're articulating something I think I have felt, which is it's almost as if collectively the, the culture anticipated um, this pandemic and the state response to it. Um, a lot of people have mentioned how everything is being described like a movie and that people react to everything like it's a movie. Um, but, but it, it, you know, if it wasn't COVID, it would be something like the, the, the culture had been indoctrinated and conditioned in a way that, that, um, that anticipated mm. uh, this kind of pandemic so that these kinds of responses um, would, would be expressed, that people would collectively express this kind of obedience. And, and um it's, I think what's really, what's very cloudy about it or difficult to tweeze apart is, is that um, there's enormous resistance to it too. And the resistance takes myriad forms. I mean, you and I, Johan, have talked about the, um, the vaccinated skeptic, um, the happily vaccinated skeptic, mm -hmm. somebody who is remarkably skeptical of the whole master narrative, distrusts all the government stuff, and quickly went out and got vaccinated, and um, and may even be skeptical of the vaccine um, that it's experimental and so forth. But they but they did it anyway, and maybe for not very clear cut reasons. Even mm. anyway, yeah, Johan. Yeah, yeah. You you go on with the the ritual or the you partake in this thing because you're you're a social human being of course i mean it's it's a natural thing to do in a way but i, I was just thinking about the uh, suboff's uh, the age of surveillance capitalism i suppose you've all read it i mean if her if her basic argument is correct that, then the emergence of of this kind of digital surveillance passport is is just inevitable it's it's something that the, the structure around us needs to continue extracting surplus value from us as per Hiroyuki's argument. Yeah. Um, Corey, you had your hand up there. So. Yeah, I just keep thinking um, that the deficit, the nature, the nature deficit that we've been watching unfold for the last um, few decades, um, especially with children now, um, how we have something something like that happening with our own bodies where we no longer trust our own immune systems and we think that Pfizer has a better um, you know operating system than our own immune system. And I think it's incredible how flippant 
people are being over their health. I mean, most people know on some level that your health is everything, right? Like, you know, that when you hurt your finger or you break your arm or you hurt, you know, you pull out your back or you get a disease, your health is everything. And yet people are willing to inject an experimental vaccine. And it's openly that there's um, no illusion around that it is experimental. Um, today, Health Canada just announced. Well, I also wanted to add to that too, how odd it is that they're willing to inject this vaccine so they will not get this disease that they're so afraid of. And yet at the same time, they will go get a latte from Starbucks, right? Or they'll go to Costco or wherever. So, I, I, you know, on one hand, it looks like there's no fear at all, except for the symbolic gestures of the mask and the distancing. And then on the other hand, it, it suggests that there is a fear to the extent that they'll put in this experimental vaccine into their body, which could cause, and we don't know, we won't see the effects for years. Um, we won't see them right away. And then um, today, the Health Canada announced that now children as young as 12 will now um, get the, their, they will get the, what is it, the Pfizer mRNA vaccine, um, you know, which is, which is to me like just it's criminal negligence um unprecedented it's these i mean i really i really think these people should be shot to be blunt it's just i it's so egregious no it's horrifying i mean the the war on children and and um you know it's it's that that's an, also a really good point and and right in line with things is that is that people are compartmentalizing the experience of the pandemic a lot um and uh uh they they will if there's certain things they want to do that violate the i don't know the social distancing rule or something but they really want to do it they will go do it um, they're not going to put themselves out that much necessarily unless there's risk of arrest or something. And there's very few instances or, or situations in which that is a threat. Um, but they will adhere um, uh, religiously to certain other rules um, and, and they will adhere to social distancing in a different context if if it doesn't put them out, um, if it doesn't interrupt their, what they want, um, there's all these contradictions and it's, it's, it seems highly compartmentalized. And this is what I mean. Like people have internalized this, these new rules. The COVID event has been internalized and, and they, have, they have the catechism for COVID behavior and they offer seemingly no objection to the so-called new normal. Um, and there was an article in the Atlantic, um, curious article that I read very quickly. I have to go back and read it further, but it was talking about the people who have embraced the lockdowns um, and all the new restrictions and are in no hurry for those restrictions to be lifted. Mm -hmm. And the author said that all the surveys done regarding this, it was um, the most progressive and liberal educated segment of the populace um, that were most most happy with the situation of the lockdown. It hadn't put them out. They actually 
um, <clears throat> seemed to function quite well and or these were also the people that were most um, neurotically terrified of, of this relatively mild um, virus. And I, you, you know, here on the podcast with you guys, we've, we've mentioned this before that it seems there is a, there is a class divide and there is maybe even a regional cultural divide if we're talking about the U S um, uh, and, and, you know, anyway, that article, which I think is out in, in the current Atlantic, didn't surprise me in the least, however. Um, Hiroyuki? I think once uh, people are forced to compartmentalize uh, things in their heads and uh, recognize things to be just a framework to uh, get going uh, without any judgment, against them. Um, you know, people, you know, go along with those things. And if it's, uh, if vaccine is an initiation ritual, it wouldn't make any sense if it's easy. Right. You know, yeah. It could be dangerous, it could hurt you, but I will show my commitment. So right. that kind of mentality, I mean, it's very, very twisted. And it's, if you think about uh, social institutions to function, uh, to protect us, it doesn't make any sense. But if we see it as religious institution, we are forced to be in uh, together, uh, part of it. Uh, and if we see it as initiation ritual, um, it makes sense. It's a dangerous initiation ritual, but I, you have to do it to be part of mm. us. So right. there is um, really interesting dynamics if we step back and look at it, and it's very, very twisted. Well, it's interesting. There's, there's, um, and I, and then I'll turn it over to you, Johanna. But I just want to interject that that um, two things. One is that I think one of one of the things that one notices about the last year and a half, the whole, the whole arc trajectory of this narrative about the pandemic um, is, that, is that not only are there contradictions embedded in that narrative, you know, I mean, wholesale contradictory information that is, that is put out there, contradictory advice, a lot of advice from governments that is extraordinarily unclear um, and, and advice that changes week to week, rules that change week to week, certainly true in Norway. Nobody seems to have a firm grasp on um, the entirety of, of uh, what these rules mean or imply or specifically um, uh, what they mean to, to the particular individual in a particular time and place. None of this is very clear. Um, and, and so that's going on. And, um, but the second thing is that this always, you know, I have a tendency to come back to this all the time is that, is that the culture is so um, impoverished and, and, um, kind of intellectually barren and emotionally stunted. We have the entertainment industry and we have very little else. And there's a kind of growing hostility to anything serious or difficult. Academia is, is uh, just a 
preposterous, almost self-parody at this point, the cancel culture, the identity-based, you know, arguments um, that people take offense. It's, they're more interested in what they can take offense at than they are almost anything else. Um, and and uh, that in that kind of environment, uh, it's very hard for uh for radical perspectives to gain any traction. Mm. Um, and it's dangerous for people to speak out increasingly. But the culture doesn't provide radical art, radical cultural expression. Mm. Communal enterprise of any sort has been discouraged and, and all, but, um, all but eradicated, really. So, so, you know, we're left with this increasingly... Um, sort of contradictory, trivial, uh, superficial society of, of very obedient um, uh, sheep, essentially. Johan. Yeah, I think I think this is a really really important topic, and and we we can I, I'd be happy to move on to the discussion about the the poverty of culture and how it lacks uh, resources for for all kinds of critical resistance. I was just going just going to add to to Hirke's, uh, statement that I also think that the compartmentalization you described on is more comprehensible. Uh, as well, if you look at things from a from a ritual perspective, uh, just to make a comparison, when, when I'm in church on, on Sundays, you you uh, in the the church itself, you know, the sacred space, you don't talk to people in there. You you never do that. It's it's uh, like a, a tacit taboo. But outside the church itself, in the in the shirktoriet, in the like the the hall, the atrium, or what it's called then there you're not kind of not supposed to do it but if i see a friend i haven't seen in a long time i can i can i can do it because the 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 delineation between the the spaces is fuzzy i mean it's 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 not not clearly a sacred space but it's not clearly a secular space either and i think this there is an equivalent here situation here with the, the the rituals connected to COVID. There there are fuzzy delineations between what's appropriate in, in various contexts. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I think I think the topic of of um, the impoverished culture is is in fact really important. And and when I was writing this blog piece over this last week. Um, the, the, I kept remembering these. I mean, it, it becomes a kind of painful process of of um, of recall uh, the things that have changed over, say, forty years, thirty years, even twenty years, uh, and and uh, it's a it's really amazing when I when I if I survey the people I know that I have worked with. Um, or over 30 years, people I've worked with um, for a very long time in the arts. Um, and, you know, by and large, I would say 80% of the people who are within my general age range are people who no longer create art. I'd say 80% of them don't create anymore. 
um, the 20% who do 15% of those people do it as a kind of hobby for themselves and their friends. Uh, and then maybe there's 5% that are really working um, artists in some way or, or, you know, and this includes academics. Um, and, and I was thinking about, cause I ran workshops for many, many years and in, in Los Angeles primarily, but in New York in Europe, in Poland, in London, Paris, I've, I've conducted theater workshops, writing workshops. And I think back, let's take Los Angeles over the say, there was like a 15 year run where I've had workshops where I was meeting weekly with people and we did productions that were informal theater companies. Well, you know, in that whole time, um, I would say there were five gifted writers that took my workshops you know, young writers that I just thought this person is gifted and they, they have something special that can't be taught. You know, Bob Fossey said, I can't make you good. I can make you better, but I can't make you good. Um, these, these were people that were already good. They just needed um, a space to work. And none of them are really doing anything significant right now because there's no place for them to do it. If we're talking about theater, but any of the arts, there, there is no place for, um, for young artists to experiment. There's no community uh, to assist them and encourage them and protect them and nurture them. There's nothing, there's nothing. And most of those say five or six, what I consider gifted writers, um, are, are none of them um, creating, creating art right now anymore. And they're all now kind of drifting into middle age. Um, that's one of the tragedies of the whole thing. And that of course precedes the whole COVID story. So we're talking about a society that has been um, in which this enormous consolidation of wealth at the top um, we've also seen uh, the, the destruction of community and, and the destruction of education, certainly, that's ongoing, the destruction of community and unions and, and, and a mass homogenization and dumbing down, a leveling off of, um, of the culture of an increasing sub-literacy that runs through everything. Um, that's, that's what, that's the state of things in which COVID, you know, took place. And so you had this enormously um, receptive population. Now what's, what's most interesting though, and I always have to remind myself of this again, is there are a lot of people, I don't know if it's a majority or not, but a significant number of people who don't buy the story at all. Those were the people protesting in the streets mm. um, and in, you know, 10 different countries all over the world, protesting, angry. Um, there were protests against things, you know, in, in, with the yellow vests in Paris well before COVID. Um, 
so so this this indoctrination this 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 kind of numbing um assault that goes on 24/7 that are reducing people to mm. um um you know a less and less human state in a sense is not entirely effective mm. um it hasn't you know in many ways it hasn't worked nearly as well as one would think um it's just that there is uh there is this control of the environment, this control of social space and control of the economy that prevents um, the visibility of these people who um, haven't bought it. Uh, yeah, Corey. Yeah, I just wanted wanted to add to that. On, um, I believe it was May 1st, there was another uh, huge uh, protest in Montreal, um, in Canada, in Quebec. And... Um, Anyway, it, it, I just wanted to, to give, you know, some kudos, I guess, to the people that are resisting and that are out there doing the work. And um, yeah, not everyone is for it. Um, also, this protest succeeded in shutting down one uh, vaccine where people were getting vaccines. They had to reschedule it and shut it down and that. So anyway, there's that. And then something in particular I did not want to forget to mention where I am, um, parents have organized and nurses are involved. They've organized outside. A lot of kids now, Ontario's closed the schools and it's all gone remote learning. So a lot of parents have pulled their kids out of the system. And one thing that my family's been involved in are, is forest school, which is once or twice a week. And you're notified the night before, um, up until then, it's an undisclosed location. All the parents are notified and, you know, it's around right now, our gatherings have been dozens to around a hundred children you know, with um, chaperones or parents come and they play in the forest and play together and have a great time. They, they're out there for a few hours, depending on the weather. And so I think that's a really positive step in the right direction. People taking, um, you know, taking hold of their own lives and taking control of their own lives, whether that's education, food, gardening, um, you know, all the rest and, you know, resisting in that way. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. Absolutely. And I think that that is, is crucially important that, that people reclaim something of, um, you know, a relationship to the material world around them. People tear themselves away from their, their smartphones and computer screens and, um, but, you know, that's, that's what was diabolical about, about the lockdowns, you know, about social distancing. It was all directed to stopping people from talking to each other about this stuff um, because it's much harder to talk online than it is in person. Yeah. And, and um, you know, and, and again, it, was, it, it has had, I'm sure we will see the, the repercussions, um, the effects on children um, for years to come. It's just being so extraordinarily um, uh, um, underappreciated and, and underreported, I think. Um, Johan. Yeah, I just wanted to say that that sounds very hopeful. And 
that there probably are a lot, a lot of examples of uh, this kind of local grassroots organizing that we're never going to hear about in this media situation. That's well, yeah. No, and you won't hear about it. And that's what I wanted to add on the other thing I just said. I mean, one of the things I have seen in the course of 40 years, if we take Hollywood or theater, fine arts, but Hollywood and theater, um, has been the, the gradual um, removal of working class voices. And the working class is invisible um, hmm. in media now. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, what you get... Um, is nomad land, you know, um, and and uh, it's it's uh, I don't know. I mean, I've I've talked to a few people about um, um, nomad land because it's such an appalling example of um, of how the working class is depicted. That poverty is a choice. That you know. Um, uh, you can have millionaire actresses, you know, married to one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, probably um, slumming with, um, you know, with real life poor people. And wow, you know, there's a free zone attached to that, I guess. Corey? No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to have my hand up. <laughs> But okay. I will say, I will say, adding on to that about the grassroots movements, like even yesterday, someone delivered a volunteer who um, delivers, I guess, 200 of these a week. And I'm sure there's a lot of them. It's a local paper that someone publishes. I'm not sure if it's once a month or once a week, but that's something you don't see anymore. And that's yeah. amazing, right? That someone's actually publishing a little paper. I think and it's I, great. Yeah. Great. Right? I mean, like this uh, one's called um it's called I think it's pronounced druthers. Like I don't I don't particularly have to agree with everything in it, but there's lots of voices in it and they're good articles and it's great. And I mean you should it's just, all subscribe to it, you know. Well, yeah, and everyone, I mean it's just great, right? Because that's yeah. That. Absolutely. In principle, everybody should subscribe to it. Everybody listening to this should subscribe to it. That's the kind of stuff that has to be encouraged and supported. People have to go out of their way to start supporting this stuff. And, and I, keep, I keep talking um, about this you know, online and, and to some people here that people have to start talking again to each other. They have to start talking. Um, I feel as though people have largely forgotten how to really talk. Um, and, and because you talk in a, in a strangely um, artificial way online and, mm. and um, it's, it's not, it's, it's um, the skills and, and the learning required to, to engage in meaningful conversation um, are are all but gone, I think, and and it's yeah. it feels like an enormous loss. Um, Hiroyuki, I think uh, uh, it, it seems like uh, uh, all the thing we've been talking about kind of merges, like the, the the fact that the culture is uh, getting destroyed, uh, dumbing down of the uh, um, our intellectual spiritual uh, capability. Uh, is crucial in um, uh, getting this uh, religious aspect of capitalism uh, uh, to thrive. 
among us. And uh, so it totally makes sense to reclaim the uh, mm -hmm. organic social relations among us to build communities and talk about what's going on and uh, put things in perspective. Yeah. Um, Johan? Yeah, I think that's something we need to, I, I agree completely. I think this is a situation we need to face that there's probably not going to be anything like a career for these authors you talk about. Art is going to have to be made face to face locally. Again, there's not going to be profits or maybe even livelihoods in this for most talented cultural workers, lacking a better word. Everything is going to have to be on the margins again. And maybe that's a really good thing in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to interrupt you, but you know, that's something I said um, when I did this workshop in Los Angeles right before um, COVID hit. I just got out in time, in fact. Um, or my leaving would have been probably much more difficult. But one of the things I said to this group, a lot of whom, most of whom I, I knew for many years, but one of the things I said was, you know, um, the, we're, what we're doing is not a mass, the creation of a mass product. A commodity we're just not doing that we're like you know and i've said this before i know i think even on podcasts you know we're like we're like the desert fathers we're like the coptic monks um way out in the terrible desert as as one of them described it um guarding you know these ancient tomes that that almost nobody knows how to read anymore um or understand but that that's okay i mean that's maybe a good thing because it's never, you know, popularity has never been a, a criteria for anything meaningful. It's a, it's, it's a modern invention, the whole idea of popularity. And, and I mean, I remember when, when um, the art section of the newspaper, in my case, the LA Times, changed to the entertainment section. They changed the name of it. And where the front page of the entertainment section each week listed box office receipts, you know, box office numbers, it became a business section, entertainment and business section. And art more or less disappeared. And um, so, so it's, you know, it, it's perfectly, and I think Robert Bly has said this too, that, that you, it's not what you do. Serious work is not, going to find a huge audience it should not find a huge audience i used to tell students that if you write a massively popular play it means you're neil simon you know um and and i don't think that's what you want to be with all due respect to neil simon but uh you know that's we're doing something else artists are doing something else and the what's interesting is that i think this is a society a culture that has lost largely the ability to describe what it is that 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 kind of art does the awakening the revelation the the human emotion that all of these things and often the ideas it's not as though art is bereft of ideas um at all but uh i think i think it's important to to remember that and that career, just God, just get rid of the idea of career. It's a yeah. terrible, nasty word. Corey. 
Yeah, that's definitely true. And I mean, if you read the white papers, children now are just basically looked at, you know, um, small packages of human capital to mm -hmm. harvest their data and they're the future co coders, right? It's all coding, yeah. coding, coding. Um, and so, yeah, new coding, basically new sweatshops. So I just wanted to touch point on something, touch base on something here. Um, I wanted to mention that the I've talked about a lot for many, many years now, I've written about it, the coming financialization of nature, um, which is led by World Economic Forum, which is partnered with the United Nations, um, and then in tandem with all the big um, World Wildlife Fund, all the big green groups. They've recently rebranded again, and that's something I always pay a lot of attention to and try to, um, ex, you know, really, really try to um, explain, educate to people how that works and how important the framing and the language and the branding um, emotive storytelling is around these campaigns. Um, so this one, the New Deal for Nature has been rebranded to um, a global goal for nature and Voice for the Planet, which is a, the oh. same, pro, the sister project um, started by World Economic Forum and, um, and, World, and World Wildlife Fund. That's um, Voice for the Planet is now Nature Positive. So the hashtag Nature Positive by 2030, um, Global Goal for Nature. And then the groups behind that, um, they have, I think over 700 um, corporate signatories and then let's see I'm just going to bring it up here I was just looking at it yesterday um, so you've got all the all the same people the natural cap um, natural capital coalition which is all the biggest corporations on the planet including Dow Chemical and that um, now it's called the Capitals Coalition because they're expanding on monetizing not only nature but social and human capital and then you've got Business for Nature, which is We Mean Business, um, UN Red. You've got Nature for Climate. It's just like a complete corporate capture of the planet. And I think we're, we'll see this probably all come together um, at the COP this year in November. Um, that's all going to be basically the focus is finishing this, finalizing this. And, you know, this is a real, I keep saying, but people don't seem to be that interested. This is a, a lot of people are understanding the great reset, but this is a huge part of it. The, the capture and monetization of, of the natural world and, and people just aren't really getting what a big part of, of the whole great reset this is, right? To save the capitalist right. system and reset it, restructure it. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, something struck me um, this week. I was just reading, I think I was reading a long thread on social media um, and I don't remember where, but um, the uh, what struck me about the conversation, because actually I don't even remember the specifics or the topic. What I remember was the sense I had of how um, certain sort of tropes or ideas uh, have become uh, deeply embedded in, in, in the, the, the public discourse. Things like um, that humans are the problem for the planet, that if we reduce, you know, it's the overpopulation thing. If we reduce the number of people, um, things will get better. And 
blaming people for you know all the problems uh, that one sees for literally everything. And of course, the, you know, the, this is because there's never a discussion about class or or any kind of like Marxist analysis of mm-hmm. of any of this stuff. And um, but but it's but it's not talked about. It's just there in these offhand remarks, you know. Um, and and the other th- thing that is there, and and I made mention of this today, um, uh, is this kind of fuzzy. Uh, mushy-brained, new-agey um, uh, environmental, you know, substitute for real environmentalism is this is this fuzzy kind of um, new-age, vaguely mystical kind of bullshit, and you know, it's Gaia and it's all this kind of, and and I think that the release from the lockdown and given all the harm that the lockdown did, um, the enormous impoverishment of small businesses, the spikes in homelessness and suicide and self-harm and 60 million jobs gone, the gutting of museums and the closing of theaters and libraries, all of this stuff. In the wake of that, as people feel this, this, wave of relief that you know they can actually go outside without a mask on or something um and and go to parties or whatever in in the shadow of that um relief is the is is i suspect going to be the birth of just like post 60s as the real 60s culture was squashed and killed and corporatized um, in this in this moment of um, of momentary transitory uh, relief, there's going to be a new kind of um, uh, new age cult movement, um, whether it's, you know, Reverend Moon or or. Marshall Applewhite, I don't know, or Jim Jones or Werner Erhard or L. Ron Hubbard. Um, we're going to see a new wave of that stuff um, because I can't imagine that we won't. The conditions are so perfectly, you know, created for exactly that to happen. Mm-hmm. And those cults are invariably authoritarian and often usually puritanical as well. Um, Johan, yeah. Yeah, if uh, so, I'm I'm a Catholic, and if you, it's it's been an ongoing discussion about these kinds of tendencies within the, the church for many years, but it's intensified in in the last perhaps five or six years or something like that, which kind of overlaps with a lot of what you describe here. And I was also thinking about today. Today is the the inauguration day of the fifth International Vatican Conference, uh, which will focus on uh, innovation in in health delivery systems and and uh, healthcare technology. And Fauci and uh, Chelsea Clinton, I think, are our keynote speakers. <laughs> and I just want to send you the the link to the page because 
it's on it's on telegram nobody who knows anything about art w- would have like approved that that horror that terrible pastiche of of the the michelangelo painting with the this is the hand of, of adam and god but they're covered oh, yeah. in latex gloves it's so <laughs> astonishingly horrendous i just thought it was relevant in relation to this discussion on art and its demise no, it, but it is it is um cory yeah, just touching on on what you were talking about, <clears throat> the <clears throat> erasure of class analysis and all of this, the paper for the global goal for nature put forward by all these corporate entities, they actually, the word human is in a 21 page um, paper for um, basically arguing for how important the sustainable development goals are to, you know, saving quote unquote saving biodiversity climate change um which is actually all about saving capital saving and restructuring the capitalist system the word humans in here 40 40 times over 40 times i believe and so for instance human pressures on nature undermine the functioning natural habitats and ecosystems so it goes on i mean of obviously there's no mention of the capitalist system. There's no mention of militarism. There's no mention of imperialism, right? All these things are, are, are conveniently cloaked and put away and disregarded. And, um, but people read this and I mean, it sounds good, right? It, it, sound, it sounds great, but even that you can see over 50% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world are created but by a very, very tiny percentage of people, you know, with yeah, the majority right. of the planet creating nothing, nothing, right. Right. right? So it's not true. And then you can also take into account that the world's remaining indigenous peoples, um, five, which I believe represent 5% of the population, they protect 80% of the planet's remaining biodiversity. So this is not true about the human pressures. This is our right. system, right? This is the suicidal system at play. And this is what needs to be eradicated. But I, I can see what you were saying about the, you know, going forward and the cult-like thing. I can see people taking it upon themselves that their suffering will be for the good of the planet. Our oppression, we, we will have to embrace it for the good of the planet, right? right. And if you do right. anything, otherwise you're a b- bad person. Right. Yeah. So, no. Absolutely. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Johan. Yeah. And uh, when I talk to to like kids in in the early twenties, uh, especially guys, they, they seem to have this. Uh, when I was their age, or maybe when I was younger, well, we we maybe thought that uh, technology would develop and we would colonize space and, and these things. But but their their view of the future seems to be one that. They will, will, they will have augmented bodies and patented implants, which will uh, like enable them to do things, and, and they they embrace this uh, this future, this narrative, this mythology as something inherently positive, and yeah. this has repercussions for what, how one views nature, how one views the material world and our bodies in in a very profound way. I think. Um, yeah, that I mean that stuff. Um is is deeply ingrained in people uh, it it has enormous traction and of course you know you see it in you see it in hollywood uh if if you watch it's an amazing barometer you know each television season uh and and 
you see the masks and the masks are on everybody. And then, you know, one week, suddenly they're mostly gone. And by the second week, they're entirely gone. Um, and, but throughout, there is always um, uh, a, a, a refrain that is repeated constantly about uh, the promise of technology, that technology will solve all of these yeah. things, that technology, we're just on the brink of a great breakthrough. Um, medical shows are always talking, they're making such progress today. They're going to cure your brain cancer by next week. Just hold on. Um, and and it is an absolute fantasy, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it is all pure magical thinking. It's just, it's puerile and and infantile, and and it's astonishing. But it is, but it is everywhere. It is just everywhere. Uh, and and of course, the the praise of of militarism. And I mean, interestingly, here in Norway. Um, and there were a couple of op-eds about this sort of critical in that tepid Norwegian way uh, that the government made this um, defense agreement, signed this defense cooperation pact with the U.S. military. So the U.S. is coming to Norway to build a submarine base, a naval base, and there's going to be two permanent military bases in the north. This is, of course, to you know keep an eye on China and Russia and try to control Arctic waterways and so forth. Um, now, the U.S. military is the world's greatest polluter, and Norwegians are nothing if not obsessive about keeping nature pristine and they do keep it pristine and they have been very good at at land management and nature management and, and you know wolf populations and all the rest of it it's been remarkable so this this is a huge departure for nothing like this has ever been um, agreed to by a Norwegian uh, government and it all flew under the radar. I mean, there were no big announcements. It was all just very quiet. And I only read about it in, um, I think, Stars and Stripes, one of the U.S. defense magazines that I, I tend to read regularly. Um, uh, and, and I thought, wow, you know, this is all the Superfund sites in the U.S., the most toxic, polluted sites in the U.S. are all former U.S. military bases, um, you know, 90 percent of them. So uh what what this portends for um for norway is a, i mean it's horrifying to contemplate actually johan yeah but but i think this says so much about how, we, how who we are as a, as a culture i mean so so people think that if something is going to save or, or protect nature it's it's industrial capitalism and it's technology i mean right. it's it's astonishing yeah no, because you never in any of this, you know, the, the stuff that Corey so um, rigorously chronicles, the, the, the corporations behind, you know, the Green New Deal and brand Greta and all of this stuff, you know, people almost often don't want to know. I mean, you have to you have to force feed them this stuff to make them understand that that these are these are corporations don't have good intentions they're not sincere environmentalists they care about profit 
Um, I was listening to that interview with with Mark Crispin Miller. It was great. And he, he kind of went off on Bill Gates. It was just terrific. And but he concluded it by saying in in the context of all the all the, you know, just countless entities and businesses and, and stuff that the Gates Foundation owns. He said Bill Gates does not have an altruistic bone in his body. Uh and this is absolutely true. He's a sociopath, uh, and and he's worked very hard to create this 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 friendly avuncular uncle in the cardigan sweater image. Um, and but now he's getting divorced. What does that mean? I actually wonder, in a way, what that means. Um, did some um, did some marketing expert decide they're more relatable as as divorcees or something? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but but yeah, I, I, I think that that the point here is as the restrictions um, lessen in most places, not everywhere, they may they may bounce back worse than ever very quickly, too. Although I think we're going to get a summer respite by and large. Um, and I could be wrong about that. I don't know. But but uh in in this moment of the relaxation of these restrictions they're going to take advantage of people's relief they the government corporations world economic forum world health organization all of these giant ngos and corporations will take advantage of that relief to um to push through things like these health ID passports and, and uh, that the EU is, is, um, is planning and they've announced and Norway has announced and, and people are making people care about that and recognizing the danger of that stuff in this moment of relief um, is not necessarily going to be easy. Um, Corey. Yeah, just on that, on the passports, um, World Economic Forum had a little video the other day about how everybody, um, they came out with a polling and everybody loves the idea of the passports. Everybody wants them. They want them for stadiums. They want them for travel, you know, and they're creating that that um, majority, right? We're the majority, majority conformity rule, basically. Everybody wants it, so you should too. And so I, I watched that video and I found that poll and I actually went and found it, downloaded it, opened it up and read it. And within it, um, actually the people polled what's not in the video. And what they don't tell you is that the people polled felt that would be adequate for three months time, six months time. 10 months time, only 13% of all the thousands of people polled thought that was a good idea indefinitely. Right. And people right. don't understand this is a permanent program. Yes, exactly. Exactly. This is, this is when you hear people say, oh, I'm going to be, I'm so relieved things are returning to normal, um, that it's all over. And it's not. And more and more of these things will be pushed through and they will manipulate polls and headlines will be misleading. And as you just described, um, uh, people may be skeptical. People may have gone on the streets to protest. And I think that was not insignificant, but uh, 
you know, people also protested the lead into the war in Iraq all over the world, millions. Uh, none of those, those protests maybe have um, helped, uh, you know, hasten, quicken the relaxation of a lot of these restrictions. Uh, but they haven't stopped the, the general plan and um, no protests. Well, people are going to have to individually um, and collectively, but start um, educating themselves, paying attention to what is going on uh, and not, and not, ex and not assume that the, the, uh, removal of these restrictions is a victory of some sort because it really isn't uh, the, the, the overall plan, the, the great reset, the sort of, you know, um, global police state that a lot of these people imagine in one form or another, um, you know, and I never thought that would be entirely successful, but they are going to, they, I got to stop saying that um, the ruling class is going to, push through as much of this stuff um, that they have planned for as possible. And, uh, and th there will be no let up in, um, in any of these, these plans for, you know, data tracking, covering people's surveillance, all of this is not going to let up. Yeah. Johan. Yeah. Yeah. But one, one of the, the most difficult aspects of, of, of getting through with the, this criticism is that, everything is framed as so so something so benevolent an example in relation to the financialization of nature is that uh, this this rights of nature uh, narrative is is uh, is sold as this uh, protection from exploitation and so on but what people fail to realize is that when there is a legal person that governs this forest or this habitat or whatever, it also has the the legal right to dismantle or sell it, which it did not exist before. So, but the problem is that it's so it's so efficiently framed in this an enormous mass media system. Right, right. Well, but that's the you know. And and we live in a culture that, as I say, I mean, there are contradictions. You know, a lot of the people who are skeptical and resist the lockdowns and will tell you it's just the flu and it was all this hysteria was a political uh, reaction, not a medical one. Those same people may still be wildly naive about about uh, other aspects of of. Uh, sort of global capital, I think. And, and uh, as you say, that everything is, they, you know, they hire marketing firms to make it seem green and friendly and warm and responsible. I saw, this is the thing with the, you know, the disproportionately visible white liberal, uh, educated, affluent to some degree. Those are the people that, that, send you you know petitions to you know let india breathe whatever that one was um that i got in the mail today from um somebody i knew really depressed me um th that disproportionate visibility means those people have disproportionate influence in shaping opinion um and they they 
will impact even the people who are inherently a, a working class population that is inherently skeptical of uh, the government at this point overall are still people who will often believe in the basic goodness of U.S. militarism, that we are a force for good. Uh, there are contradictions and their politics can often be very muddled and, and um, um, immature, political immaturity. And uh, I don't have a solution to that other than it's just one, one has to try to talk to people about, yeah. you know, that, that, that without risking being called a conspiracy theorist and just point out there are absolute economic facts, there are historical facts, there are things that you can't refute. Yeah. Please look at it and draw your own conclusion. Um, no, don't trust me, just read this information and see, and then we'll talk. Then there are questions you can ask. Um, but if all you do is read the New York Times and, and watch MSNBC, there are no questions you can ask. That, that stuff is designed to, um, to mute the question uh, impulse in people, I think. All right. Um, anybody else want any sort of concluding thoughts here? I've lost all track of time, so I don't know how long we've been talking. Um, not that it matters. Imagine what, what you just said. I mean, it's it's like that quote from from uh, Orwell's 1984: "There is truth and there is untruth." I mean, that that's an that's an axiom that's completely indispensable in the, in this context, and it's also extremely difficult to to anchor and get out to people because of all this you you mentioned. Right. Right. No. I mean. Um... Yeah, it's it's uh, and people are, you know, people are understandably frightened about losing their job. They don't want to say something. And then at the water cooler, people will gossip or send gossipy emails to each other, I guess, or gossipy chats. Um, jobs are few and far between. People don't want to lose their jobs uh, in general. They don't. If they have families, they don't want to have their children stigmatized because of what they say. Um, the system is designed to um, discourage dissent. And, and the culture, again, this is back to the culture is so threadbare and so, uh, um, I don't know the word, you know, it, it, it's strip mined, reduced to, to just, you know, um, the scaffolding of what was once a thriving culture and and uh without that it's it's very hard it's very hard i think for people to to develop a radical perspective and culture is extraordinarily important art is extraordinarily important and everything in media today will tell you art is mm. extraordinarily unimportant and um they, they say that for a reason, you know. All right. Okay. Um, no final thoughts from anybody? Oh, well, you know what? I, I, sorry. <laughs> yes. Please, all at once, tell me. <laughs> Hiroyuki. Well, I was just thinking that uh, the way things are expressed and described uh, really 
make me think that uh, uh, we're just getting uh, multiple choice questions. We're just answering, yeah. you know, this or that. There's no uh, ideas being being generated, and uh, this is really coming from the uh, the systematic uh, uh, things we just talked about. And this is this is a form of fascism. This is a form of uh, oppression, and it's devastating. It kills our souls, kills our spirituality, kills our intellectual capabilities, and uh, it's a bad thing. Absolutely, I have to tell you. This just reminded me, because I have to tell you, this is my AI anecdote for the week. Um, I was calling uh, the Internal Revenue Service in the U.S., and um, that's always a long wait, right? So uh, because I was curious about the stimulus checks and would I get them for my kids and stuff, I actually did get them independent of this but anyway i'm on the phone and i'm waiting and a computer voice finally answers after like eight minutes of waiting hello i can understand what you say please <laughs> and so i am going okay i need to find out about my stimulus checks i'm sorry i didn't catch that would you repeat <laughs> okay so i'm gonna speak so i this goes on for several minutes and i said okay look you know, um, I need to I need to to find out like the dates that these checks were mailed and I'm blah, blah, blah. And, you know, once again, I'm sorry, I didn't catch. And I, you know, but is there anything else I can do for you? I said, well, you could have, you know, I'd like to talk to a fucking human being. That's <laughs> what I said. Right. And the, the voice goes, I'm sorry, you're frustrated. Let me send you to one of our representatives. <laughs> this means that somebody wrote the code to recognize <laughs> saying the word fucking in a sentence loudly meant that the person was dissatisfied. So maybe there is a future for AI. I don't know. Um, but I, that struck me as so funny. Um, anyway, Corey, any last thought? No, just that it's really um, frustrating because people don't respond to facts. People respond to emotion, right? And that's what mm. I've learned. That's why there's trillions spent on the marketing and the advertising and the storytelling, right? I, so we can have all the peer-reviewed papers and all the facts in the world. The fact is people don't respond to, to that. Right. So it's very difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, um, people don't read, um, and and the world of screens has um, it's caused a lot of damage, cognitive damage. I think. I don't know. All right, guys. Um, no, hold on, Mir. Let me let me finish. Also, yeah, <laughs> I have a I have an ominous bit here. I think that ties uh, very well into what we've been speaking about here. It's it's from an author I, I respect very much. He's called John Michael Greer. Uh, I'm not going to talk about him. I just go right ahead. Uh, for an even more extreme example, consider the trajectory that created the most dangerous of those same Axis powers. Not much more than a decade before the Second World War began, Germany was a textbook example of a failed state, an economic basket case with a discredited political establishment and intractable, intractable social conflicts that routinely neared the brink of civil war. 
reasonable methods applied by reasonable men failed to do anything about these problems. And so the German people eventually got tired of reasonable men and turned to someone who would, would and did do something about them. Hitler was not a reasonable man, and he understood better than nearly anyone else of his time the power of the non-rational to shape human thought and action. His response to Germany's disintegration amounted to government by magic. Germany became one vast magical temple flooded with symbols, incantations, and ceremony. Reasonable men predicted that Hitler would be out of a job in six months, six years later, in total control of a totally disciplined nation and one of the world's most fearsome war machines. He declared war on most of the planet and came within an ace or two of winning. Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to end with, because that's great, and I just want to end with a, a thought that I that I had while I was writing my blog post, um, um, the dream is a mother. The dream is the mother. Um, but I wrote and quoted a lot about the witch burning. I quoted Sylvia Federici's book, Caliban and the witch, which is, which is a brilliant book. Um, the 15th and 16th century, hundreds of thousands of women were burned at the stake as witches. Um, and, and that, that, the church at that time recognized the importance of um, of this growing capitalist entrepreneurship and and the patriarchy that it expressed, and so they formed the Holy Inquisition and so forth. And just my thought was, people like Gates and Zuckerberg are the people that burn witches. I mean, that's that's what they would be doing in. Um, 1610 or something uh, and that people need to really understand that I think um, these are bad people I don't know if they you know at what point they turned into bad people but they are they're they're extraordinarily destructive and cruel and um, and to be feared okay uh, thank you everyone thanks to Jack Lipman um, as always, for helping so much with this. And um, I'll talk to you guys all soon, yeah? Yeah, Thanks. thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks, guys. Okay, bye-bye.